back to Cairo Nights. Yep, today, Peter Gabriel tickets went on sale, right? Gabriel's going to tour. Going to come to Climate Pledge, I guess it's in November. Right? Nice. Love me some Peter Gabriel. I like Peter Gabriel when, I mean, this album, So, right? It was just a flamethrower. Was it 86, I think, if I'm not mistaken, right? Red Rain, Sledgehammer. 1986, you are correct. Just, uh, he owned, owned MTV, every Peter Gabriel video after Peter Gabriel video. Um, I love old Gabriel, though, with Genesis. You know, I love that stuff. There's a band called, what are they called? Musical Box. And they recreate um, old Genesis shows from the Peter Gabriel era. Era, not era, sorry, era. Um, like, uh, you know, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. And they do, like, entire recreation of, of those shows from those from the 70s. In their entirety, and the way that the set, the same setlist the band played, and these they're constantly professional musicians who have the stuff dialed in note for note. And they've got the singer, I forget his name, but he does Peter Gabriel spot on, impeccable. They've bought costumes and stage props that were used in the original Genesis tours from the 70s. It's called Musical Box. They play, they come through town every couple of years or so. We saw them downtown, Joe, my old uh, producer, and I from my friend from my radio love. Radio Life um, took me down to see him at the, uh, I guess it's the Pantages down at Tacoma. And it's it's a time machine, Matt. It is an absolute time machine. Oh, I saw Peter Gabriel play with Sting here. And I, I know this is his first solo tour. <clears throat> Excuse me. In uh, I think it's in 11 years, you're saying? You're saying? Um, I saw that Sting and he toured in Rock, Paper, Scissors was the, uh, was the name of the tour. And God, has it been 11 years already since that tour came through? Seems to me that was like, I don't know, uh, yeah, maybe 2016, 2017, somewhere in that window. And it was Sting and Peter Gabriel. It was, I've never seen a show like this. I've seen like, mo- like dueling headliners before where bands will come out and they'll be two major headliners. And they'll literally take turns. One night this band will open. One night that band will open. You know, because they both are marquees. And it's a great way to, to, to draw a nice crowd. And get get your money's worth for ticket price these days. It's hard to get your money's worth these days for ticket price. So Gabriel and Sting played at the Rock Paper Scissors tour, and I bring it up because I, I, this Peter Gabriel news is great news. If you're a fan, I hope you are. If not, you don't care about this story. Sting and Peter Gabriel toured together a tour called Rock Paper Scissors, and they each you go you go into the venue, and it's a huge stage with two full setups side by side. Sting's band and Peter Gabriel's band are set up both in their entirety on stage. And the guys come out and they play their set and they were one after the other. They would they would go back and forth playing a Sting song, a Peter Gabriel song, then a Sting song, then a Peter Gabriel song. And they literally were one-upping each other all night long. As opposed to somebody come out and doing their whole show. And then the other act coming out and doing their whole show. They had two bands side by side. Sometimes the bands would collaborate on a number. A Sting would sing a Peter Gabriel song. Peter Gabriel would sing a sing, a sing a Sting song. At one point that night, Eddie Vedder came out and sang Red Rain with Peter Gabriel's band. It was the most interesting. I've never seen any kind of show like that where they were literally two bands side by side, two icons of rock and roll, Peter Gabriel and Sting, competing where they would one up each other all night long. It was a, I was going to say it was phenomenal, but I'm saving that word for the night. That's not my official one-time use of phenomenal tonight. 
It was called Rock Paper Scissors. Somebody can help me out on the text. You line work the extra was. hours, you get an extra. I, phenomenal oh, I got, I've show. got, a, I've got a bonus. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. Have that written into your contract. Uh, you're, you're my agent. I, I, I would do. I could do a lot worse than having you as my agent. Um, and how about the story Lisa talked about? How the Seattle has the least annoying fans in all of professional baseball. I think that's. I think that's true. I've I've been around the country seeing baseball in a bunch of cities. I was raised a, a sports fan. You know, I never got to see games in all of the uh, the NFL parks. I would have liked to have seen a, a game in the old Mistake by the Lake Municipal Stadium in Cleveland to see a Browns game there. They've got a brand new stadium there. You know, um, I was born and raised in Baltimore at Memorial Stadium where the Colts and Orioles used to play. They've each got new side-by-side stadiums, much like Seattle does in their downtown section on the waterfront in Baltimore, Inner Harbor. I've seen a game at Fenway. Seen a game at Dodger Stadium. Seen a game at uh, Wrigley. Seen a game at Comiskey's. You know, I love old parks like that. But sometimes the fans. Oh, I saw a football game at the at the Vet in Philly before they built their new Franklin Field or whatever they're calling their field in Philly nowadays. It's the kind of place where you don't wear opposing jerseys. I traveled with the Seahawks once through my radio job. The Hawks were uh, very generous and they gave away. Uh, a trip for our listeners when I was back at a different station. So my wife and I and a pair of listeners got to travel with the team and go to the game with, and when I say with the team, I mean like with the front office of the team, the people who do sports information and the assistants and all these things, not with the players. But we go to the, go to a, a Raider game in Oakland at the old Oakland Coliseum. And boy, there's never been a worse stadium. I've never been in a worse stadium than the Oakland Coliseum. And we're going in there to watch the Seahawks play the Raiders. This is when John Kitna was the quarterback of the Seahawks, so it's a while back, back in the blue and silver uniform days. And we're going on the bus to the to the stadium. And you pull, I don't know if you've ever been to a game in Oakland before the Raiders moved. The field is literally, the parking lot, the field's surrounded by a parking lot, very industrial portion of Oakland. And the field is ringed by a barbed wire fence, the, the, the parking lot of the stadium. And there's folks tailgating on the parking lot. In Oakland, locals, Raider fans. And I swear to you, Matt, they had like trash can barrel fires burning on the parking lot. They were playing tackle football on the parking lot, on the blacktop. Grown men playing tackle football pregame for the Raiders game on the blacktop of the Oakland Coliseum parking lot. It was literally like it was like Escape from L.A., that movie with that uh, Kurt Russell movie. That's what, that's what the Oakland Coliseum looked like when you wanted to watch the Seahawks game. And the Hawks front office, I'll never forget this. They said to us on the bus as the bus was pulling in, look, guys, we we appreciate your – actually, they told us this at the hotel. For my memory's coming back a little better. At the hotel before the game, we appreciate your supporting the team. We love that you're here to see your team in a road game. But we recommend that you don't wear your Seahawk colors into the Oakland Coliseum with these Raider fans because we really can't guarantee your safety. And <clears throat> it didn't fall on deaf ears. We took off. You know, we put on generic clothing, a coat, a sweatshirt. Didn't wear blue and green into the stadium just for personal safety. We rooted. We, we yelled, but they couldn't. They couldn't guarantee that we were we would be safe. And and all stadiums have knuckleheads. Uh, you know, all all pro sports teams have fans who get a little uh, a little too much joy, a little too much liquid sunshine going in. You know, and they get a little overboard. When you go to a Seahawks game here in Seattle, I think one of the smartest things this team ever did was put undercover cops in the stadium in opposing teams' jerseys. 
And they told the fans they were doing that. Brilliant. Because if you get, you know, a little deep in your cups, a little obnoxious, and you get into it with a fan from the Cowboys who'd always travel well, or the Packers, or the Steelers, those teams travel incredibly, great fan base that travels with their team. Or a Niners fan, which is usually the problem. And you start trouble with a Niners fan or a Cowboy fan, that could be an undercover cop. And you could be going to jail. That's in the back of your mind as a Seahawk fan. Don't start trouble with opposing teams fans. You could end up in jail. It's not worth your time. And, I, and I, I've always found that to be weird because having the opportunity to travel and see my team play in a bunch of different cities, I think fans who travel with their team, that's that's the greatest. How can you have a problem with somebody spending their hard-earned pay and their vacation time from work to, you know, maybe the only week off that guy got all year long, he's traveling across the country, his whole year's vacation budget to come see the Packers play in Seattle, to come see the city of Seattle, spend his money in your town, get a hotel room, maybe even rent a car, bring, bring his money to Seattle. How can you treat these people badly? Or, you know, it's yell at them, sure. You know, yell louder than they do. Maybe a few good-natured jeers and jibs, you know, in the stands. But don't start trouble. Don't be physical. Always blew my mind. I always had the most respect for fans from other teams who travel with their team to see him play in other cities. I think that's the ultimate show of respect. I got to see the Hawks play down in New Orleans, about three, I think three different times over the course of my life so far. And New Orleans fans, because that's, I mean, everybody goes to see their team play in New Orleans. It's the ultimate destination to go see your team play, play the Saints in New Orleans at the Superdome or the Mercedes-Benz Dome, whatever they're calling it these days. People in New Orleans were so great. And the 12s travel very well. Seattle's one of the best traveling football teams in the NFL. Seahawks fans go, man. They go. And they're treated very well in New Orleans. They're treated very well in New York City. Got to see the Hawks play in the Giants and at the Meadowlands. And it doesn't surprise me that Mariner fans are the least annoying, the least obnoxious, the least drunk, you know, the least trouble fight-starting fans in all of baseball. I'm, I was really glad to hear that, but I wasn't surprised to hear that. So good on you, M's fans. Season's almost upon us. Opening days, God, less than a month away now as the M's are in full spring training mode. Good on you, Seattle. Uh, it doesn't mean you, you can't scream and yell and be louder. Maybe a little bit more enthusiastic. Maybe a little less, little less golf claps out there. But the Mariner, Mariner fans stepped up. Last year, we really stepped up. Made the postseason. It was awesome. See, I wasn't going to talk about that, but that was that was fun. Let's talk about my other addiction. Because the, the story I wanted to do this break, I just ate half the time up talking about you great Mariner fans who don't spit on opposing you know, fans. That's good on you. I've told you about this addiction before. Uh, about five years ago, well, maybe maybe 10, 10 years ago, I started buying uh, this, this thing for my daughter. She was, uh, you know, elementary school age at the time. And I started buying her Funko Pops. They had these little, you know, Funko Pops. You know what they are. They're the, the, the big-headed plastic little four, six-inch dolls, whatever they are. The Up in Everett, Funko has their headquarters. Local product, local treasure. Funko Pops. And I started buying them for my daughter. Got her little princesses from Disney movies or from, you know, whatever whatever she was into. I found, when Hamilton was big, I bought her all the Hamilton Funko Pops. But then I, I got the bug. 
and I, I think I've mentioned this to you, but I've confessed this before on air. My first Funko Pop, I couldn't resist. I'm looking shopping for my daughter. They've got a Funko Pop of, of Hannibal Lecter, like strapped to the handcart with the mouth thing, you know, the, the face mask on. Love the suit, Governor, you know, Senator. I mean, I got to have that. So I bought my first Funko Pop. Well, then it was, oh, my God, there's, it's Angus Young from ACDC. With the guitar and the devil horn hat. I got to have that one. Next thing you know, I got three different Elvis Funko Pops. I've got everybody from ZZ Top. and They've got real beards. Little fuzzy beards on my Funko Pops. I've got the police. I've got, so far now, I've got almost 150 Funko Pops at home. My wife's ready to have me put away. To have me just sent away. You know, I'm in Funko Pop rehab. Uh, I got Captain Kirk in his chair. It's wonderful. I've got... Uh, I've got uh, Quint from Jaws in the Orca with a Funko Park, a Funko Pop shark eating half of them. It's awesome. Uh, you know, I look like an idiot, but I've, I've got Belushi as Bluto with the with the the toga and the laurel wreath. You know, I've got I've got Bill Murray in. I've got Bill Murray as Stripes. I've got Bill Murray as um, Caddyshack, Carl Spackler. And I've got Bill Murray as the weatherman in Groundhog Day. He came with a little groundhog. How could I not buy that? So, yes, I've got a Funko Pop addiction. I haven't bought it's been It's been eight months since my last Funko Pop purchase. You know, keep coming back one day at a time. You know, only works if you work it. <laughs> I'm, I'm beating my addiction. But I see this story in the news um, that <laughs> Funko Pops um, had an off year last year. In from tw- from 2020 to 2021, Funko Pops had a 61 percent increase in sales. I mean, they exploded, exploded in popularity. Doing large part of the pandemic, we were all locked at home. We were shopping online. Online advertising works. Pop up ads work. And you know, and I fell victim to them too. I have an Elvis. I have three different Elvis Funko Pops at home. I've got the uh, the Hawaii. The jumpsuit, I got the jumpsuit Elvis with the record. It's like, it's like this collector piece. It's amazing. But my wife was so ticked off when I bought this thing. The reason I bring this up tonight is this. Funko Pop had a bit of a down year. And they had sales drop off dramatically from 2021 to 2022. The boom was over. And Funko found themselves with this surplus of Funko Pops. Their warehouse, storage warehouses were full. They had to rent additional storage space because they started producing these Funko Pops after a 61% increase from 2020 to 2021. They anticipated that this boom would never stop. And they've got all these excess Funko Pops. Everything from Yoda to Darth Vader to Shirley Temple to Princess Leia, you name, or, you know, uh, all the Disney characters. Every, everybody's got a Funko Pop. They've got Funko Pops for everybody. Got a little Alice Cooper. With a white top hat and the blood eye makeup, it's adorable. Well, Funko found out that they had all these Funko Pops and no place to store them. They were renting additional storage space and it was costing so much money that Funko is destroying $30 million worth of Funko Pops. Those little six-inch plastic dolls that I'm addicted to and many other people are as well. They're destroying them. It makes more business sense because it costs so much to store them and they don't want to flood the market with them by just releasing them at, at a lower price 
and devaluing the Funko Pop itself by flooding the market and giving way more supply than there is demand. So it's a better business decision to destroy $30 million worth of Funko Pops. What a, what a world you must live in. What a, what a company you must have when it's a better business decision to destroy $30 million worth of product. Just to increase demand and not flood the market with your materials. I mean, how much how much money do they make at Funko? We're destroying $30 million worth of product. It's a good business decision. Blew my mind when I saw this story. I'd like to know where they're doing it so I can just root through it before the fire gets too big and pick up the ones. <laughs> that's, what I, that's why I'm asking. They'll probably have armed guards. Uh, uh, maybe somebody in the Funko world is listening to me can help a brother out. Help me get in the back door before you look. Let me throw the match. Okay? <laughs> it's Cairo Knights, and I've got a problem. I'm Spike O'Neill, along with Matt Butler. We'll be right back. Four on the show, and right now it's uh, being listened. Uh, being uh, on arguments are being heard at the Supreme Court level, right, on whether or not President Biden's executive order to relieve student loan debt to the tune of ten thousand dollars per debt holder, uh, twenty thousand if you have a Pell Grant, which is a government uh, grant uh, from for students, uh, you know, low, lower interest rates. And there's a mixed bag on on whether or not. Student loan, not just whether it's whether it's constitutional that Biden could take this executive order to relieve student loan debt, and whether or not uh, he's buying votes, whether or not if you paid your student loans in full, you should be saddled with the tax burden of funding other people's student loans. And I don't want to get into the minutia because it's apples and oranges. Folks who spent twenty five grand on their entire college education. Uh, should have some empathy for folks who spend twenty five grand a quarter nowadays to take student loan debt, take on student loan debt. Um, I think they handled student loan completely bass backwards. The Biden administration did what they should have done was framed it in the way of predatory lending. I think what they should have done was sought relief for interest on student loans, sought relief for, for folks who still hold student loans to say. Uh, forgive any future interest payments because that's where where the damage is done in student loans is the incredible interest rates that are paid. That's but, how you wind up with people owing more than they borrowed after paying back already more than they borrowed. Yeah, it's insane. Some of the people and and when and when President Biden tries to relieve student loan debt. Uh, and you'll hear these stories about how 70 percent of students say they're going to spend that 10 grand on beer or travel or clothes. Or whatever, and it's it's they're vilified for that. You know, they're they're not going to put down payment on a house with ten grand. Okay, right, ever. Um, mostly, you have to remember that whatever they don't spend on student loans, whether it's spent on beer or clothes or vacations, it's being put back into the economy. 
It's goose in the economy. It's money being spent. That's how you boost an economy. You know something I'm noticing as I age, and it frustrates me immensely. Hair it growing seems, out of your ears? That's what well, I'm noticing a lot of that personally. <laughs> personally, that's yeah, horrible. I think hair loses the fight with gravity. That's why it comes out of your ears and your nose. It can't make it to the top anymore. But I digress. Go on, Matt. Yeah. So the thing that bugs me is we have this idea. It used to be you wanted people to climb the ladder, to rise to their most successful point. Now it seems like we've got a whole lot of people who are really keen to scramble up that ladder and then pull it up behind them. Yeah. That mentality. Yeah. That's what's so frustrating, and it applies in so many aspects, but you see it a lot in this. Well, if I didn't get something, why should this person get yeah, something? I, I, and yeah. at the same time, they're not looking at the other side of the coin and going, "How? What, what did I give to the banks, to Wall Street, to defense contractors? Nope. It's all about the student loan thing. It's frustrating. Well, they're, they're, what if I told you that Biden was quietly forgiving student loans already? while the Supreme Court was looking at this executive order and its constitutionality. I'd say you go, Brandon. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So under the Obama administration, a program was started to relieve student debt for those who had been defrauded in taking on student debt, who were victims of not just predatory lending, but fraud. Uh, here's a story. It's from the it's from the Seattle Times, written by uh, Eric John uh, just yesterday. Sarah Diaz was feeling emotionally was excuse me. Sarah Diaz was feeling emotional when she checked her email Tuesday. She was among the hundreds of Neiman Marcus employees laid off last month and had just finished a stressful phone call about her health insurance. As she went through her inbox, she noticed an email from the Department of Education. Diaz had applied to have the government cancel sixty nine thousand dollars in federal student loan debt, she took out to attend the Art Institute of Pittsburgh, a for-profit school that closed back in 2019. Two and a half years, two education secretaries and one class action lawsuit later, her application had finally been approved. I couldn't believe it, she said. I reread it five times. For decades, a lesser-known program of federal student loan recipients has allowed borrowers to assert a defense to repayment if a school misled them or broke state law. Since the Education Department introduced a formal application in 2015, more than 770,000 people have applied. Nearly half a million applicants were still pending at the end of January. Now, after a modest start at the end of the Obama administration, the program, stagnant under former President Donald Trump, it went stagnant, okay, stagnated, excuse me. But under President Joe Biden, the Education Department has ramped up processing borrower defense applications, overhauled the regulations governing the program and used it to cancel billions in debt for people who attended for-profit colleges accused of defrauding students. These aren't lazy people who just took up, had a bad major or, you know, didn't, didn't bother to repay their debts. It's part of a broader strategy the Biden administration has used to offer debt relief to the borrowers struggling the most with their loans. At a time when Biden's plan to cancel up to 20000 in debt for some borrowers is a non-starter in Congress and at risk of being blocked by the Supreme Court, his administration has tried to bolster the existing web of programs, policies, and regulations meant to protect student loan borrowers. The Education Department has forgiven more than $18 billion for borrower defense applicants. Betsy DeVos, the former Secretary of, of Education under President Trump, strangleholded this program. They used all the resources of this program to 
to whittle away at the program itself, to cut off its ability. I mean, no one was getting this program approved. 440,000 applicants. Oh, excuse me, 770,000 applicants. We're talking about that institutions that lied to their students about the the job placements of of their graduation. So, you know, they, it, it, like like the Art Institute in Pittsburgh, Art Institutes closed across the country. They would tell this particular student, this uh, Sarah Diaz, we have a ninety two percent graduate placement rate. Once you get a degree from the Art Institute, you can make over starting salaries at seventy five thousand dollars a year, and over ninety two percent of our applicants. Are, are placed. And what she found was they would send her, you know, dozens of job opportunities in fields completely different than she had trained for that paid twenty to twenty-five to forty thousand dollars a year. They're, these students were completely misled. So these these students are getting relief because they were defrauded. And that's a, I think we can all agree on that. This isn't about irresponsibility. Right. This isn't about picking about a major in, you know, equine history or some in some major that's never going to pay the bills that there aren't jobs. And these are students that were defrauded. Institutions like Corinthian College, ITT Deco Institutes, you know, three point nine billion dollars and two hundred thousand borrowers who enrolled in ITT Technical Institutes were defrauded, lied to about the opportunities after their graduation how much they could earn with their degrees from these various institutions. And those people are getting relief from the federal government. They were, they were victims of fraud. These companies go bankrupt, these big, large, you know, for-profit private schools. They rake students in. They targeted students who were lonely, you know, antisocial, desperate. I mean, they targeted specific students to go after. So basically their target demo was radio producers. But guys like you, Matt. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, 44 million Americans hold $1.6 trillion in federal student debt. And, you know, it's, it is, it's the next major catastrophe facing our economy. Students like Matt said, who, who still owe, they they borrowed, say they borrowed 200 grand. They've already paid back over 200 grand and they still owe over 200 grand in their student loans. You know, I think the government went about this the entirely the wrong way. They should have gone after predatory lending and ridiculous interest situations. You know, if you borrowed this much and you've paid back this much, you still owe whatever your premium left of your loan is. That's all you owe. No more interest. That would have been something nobody could argue against. Then the villain isn't lazy students with stupid major choices. The villain then is predatory lenders. I think that's the best way to go about it. But I'm... I'm just a guy who's taken on more student debt. I just got graduated a year and a half ago with a degree in marketing after I was you know, kicked to the curb by radio. So I've got some student debt of my own. I've got a younger kid at home just starting college. We'll try to help them a little bit with their debt as they move through their life. So it affects my family, too. And because I, I know the Supreme Court's going to kick this thing out to the curb. I know they are. They're going to find Biden's executive order unconstitutional. It's Cairo Nights. I'm Spike O'Neill along with Matt Butler. We'll be right back after these.
Welcome back to Cairo Nights. Spike O'Neill along with Matt Butler. Oh, lovely. Or try to give him a student loan. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, I can listen to this all night. The four tops love this. Isn't this great? Oh, Matt Butler, ladies and gentlemen. There's a story that, uh, I mean, you know, Matt, I, I'm trying not to be biased on this story, but I, I can't, I can't stop myself. I'm no fan of Walmart. You know, I, I, I like low, low prices, you know, um, I think they serve a, a, an important part in a lot of communities. I think they're an option for folks on a tight budget, especially during inflationary times like we have today. Walmart's needed. I don't like the fact that they have more of their workforce qualifying for federal assistance than any other employer in America. You know, the Walton family uh, that owns Walmart are among the richest people on the face of the earth. And I'm not against capitalism, but if you're making record profits, if you're making like insane, crazy amounts of money that you're among the richest people on the face of the earth and your workforce is being subsidized by taxpayers because you don't pay enough for your workforce, they qualify for food stamps, SNAP, whatever the assistance is, then you're you're making zillions on the back of the taxpayers subsidizing your workforce. And I, I've never been a fan of that. I won't be a fan of that ever. It's impossible. It's announced today that Portland is losing its final two Walmarts. Walmart has closed has closed down most of them already, and they're closing down the final two Walmarts in the city of Portland. And they're doing it because of record-breaking thefts. Shoplifting, record-breaking levels of shoplifting in their stores in now, Portland. Now, did they come out and say that? Yes. That's And, and well, that, that's a fair question. I'm reading a story that's written, Walmart will close its final two Portland stores and lay off over 600 workers after record-breaking thefts in Democrat-led city. See, because the way yeah. I read it, these stores were not hitting targets. Now, one could argue that it might have been the result of crime, but the statement from Walmart was that these stores were not meeting their revenue expectations. Now, is that because of the theft being well, calculated that's, into that's the profit That's the market? question I would like to yeah. have answered yeah, before I, I rule either way. I would like a, well, sometimes these things, sort of like the Starbucks closings, the, the timing can be a little interesting. I agreed. And the fact that this story says a Democratic-led city, it's a hatchet piece on the city of Portland for being democratically led. And don't get me wrong, Portland has deep, deep troubles. I right, to- this could well be the case. I'm just saying I would like to truly know if it was these were underperforming stores and that's what it looks like or if that was truly the root cause. Well, in, in a city that has got an incredible homeless uh, crisis in Portland, I mean an incredible homeless crisis and an incredible crime crisis, and that is due in large part to people not having the ability – People don't steal because they want to. They steal because they have to. I think in a large, a large percentage of crime is desperation and necessity driven, right? Nobody has the money in their pocket and walks into Walmart and just rips off a bunch of stuff because they can. I Unless mean, you're the guy from Jane's Addiction who just wanted to write a song about they, it. Oh, I love that. Love caught stealing. Oh, <laughs> the greatest. I just enjoy stealing. Simple fact. Um, so please take that tape out of context. Um it it seems kind of crazy to me that you're going to close down a store based on record shoplifting. 
you know, and, and, and put 600 people out of like work. Like if it was just that, Walmart could hire more security. Well, from what I've heard about this story, Walmart reached out to the city of Portland and said, hey, can we hire some off-duty officers? And Portland said, no, we don't have enough officers as it is. Well, I guarantee you there are security companies that they could hire. You know what would stop shoplifting in Portland uh, Walmarts? You know, having a couple, there's, aren't there Starbucks in the most Walmart stores, right? How about a couple guys just standing around at uh, Starbucks with their AKs over their shoulder, their AR-15s over their shoulder, waiting for their Frappuccinos? Hey, we could give you Al-Qaeda something to do. Seriously, put them to work. You know what's going to stop shoplifting at Walmart? A bunch of guys standing there with AKs or AR-15s or whatever. I don't, I don't know guns. I'm, yeah, I'm but they're moron. boycotting Starbucks. Well, so. well, then just have them stand. I mean, hire armed guards to stand at the gates of the doors of your Walmart store. Pay somebody a beyond minimum wage so they're not, you know, making beyond what they usually play your other people working at Walmart. You know, if you're losing that much in record shoplifting that you've got to close down the only two Walmarts in Portland, uh, something doesn't smell right here. I mean, I, I appreciate that you're skeptical about the story being based on solely because you know, they're not profitable. They're losing too much money because of shoplifting. Put some damn armed security at the gates and no one's going to shoplift at the Walmarts in Portland. Portland needs these Walmarts. I mean, there's a couple other stores within five, six miles of, of Portland. It's in Gresham and uh, Milwaukee, Oregon, which are, you know, five to six miles away from where these current stores are closing in North and in southeast Portland. Culturally, though, wouldn't you imagine that Portland would be a city that probably wouldn't be one of the biggest revenue generators for Walmart as it is? The, the city of Due Portland the cultural itself? climate. I would say that probably mm. not a lot of at least the urban core of Portland is going to be interested in shopping at a Walmart. Uh, you, you may be right. You may have something there. But I, I know that if you've got that much of the population that's living on the streets... They probably they probably could benefit from a Walmart, right? From the low prices Walmart offers. I mean, Walmart comes in and they under, through just mass volume of scale. You know, they uh, they can undercut any other retailer for prices on stuff. That's something a community needs. I like I said, I get the benefit that Walmart brings to a lot of areas. Sure, they put a lot of small mom and pops and, and brick and mortar stores out of business because they can't compete with Walmart from a price perspective. But in a city that's got a horrible homeless and crime crisis, they need low-priced goods. In mass, they need these two Walmarts. I just am skeptical that they're closing for, for the reason stated, that it's because shoplifting has gotten so bad. I mean, I see, you know, security guards everywhere. Put them at the exits. That would stop shoplifters, I know that much. Uh, you know what? We're going to play now for you in the 9 o'clock hour. We're going to take some of the best of this afternoon's show from Cairo Middays with Jack Stein and myself. Matt's grabbed a couple different uh, pieces that we think you'll benefit listening to and enjoy. I hope that you do. Uh, I'll be here tomorrow from 12 to 3 with Jack Stein, and Matt and I will be here tomorrow from 7 to 10 with Cairo Nights. We appreciate you guys being part of the show. Talk to you again.